If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 22 and then into chapter 6 through verse 12. Leif Anderson tells the story. He says, when I was a boy growing up outside of New York City, I was an avid fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers. In fact, I have not yet quite forgiven them for moving west. The arch enemy in my childhood was the New York Yankees. I had seen them only on television and heard them only on the radio until I was invited by my father to skip school and go to the World Series game between the Yankees and the Dodgers. I'll tell you, it was one of the great thrills of my childhood. I remember sitting there smelling the hot dogs and hearing the cheers of the crowd and, and the feel of it all. I knew those Dodgers were going to shellac those Yankees once and for all. Unfortunately, the Dodgers never got on base. So my thrill was shattered. I tucked it away somewhere in my unconscious until as an adult, I was in a conversation with one of these fellows who was a talking and walking sports almanac. I mentioned to him when, uh, when I went uh, to my first major league game, I said it was such a disappointment. I was a Dodger fan, and the Dodgers never got on base. He said, you were there? You were at the game when Don Larson pitched the only perfect game in all of World Series history? I said, yeah, but, uh, but we lost. I was so caught up in my team's defeat that I missed out on the fact that I was a witness to a far greater page of history. How many of us have maybe felt that way in our own lives? We're so consumed with something in our life that's not going right that we miss the things that God's doing for our benefit, for our good. We can't see what he's doing, right? Because we're so focused on this one item. And it just consumes us. Well, I, I don't know. Over the years, I know that God's spoken to me, right? It's clear. But maybe I haven't seen it until much later on. But I've been more aware recently of God's still small voice. He's spoken to me through his word on several occasions in just the past several months. He's also spoken to me in my spirit, prompting me to do certain things. And while he's certainly done those same things in years past, I'm finding just a strong desire to be obedient immediately to his still small voice. To hear what he has to say and to to do what he's asking me to do. And through his prompting and my immediate obedience, I have been uh, growing in my knowledge of God and who he is and what he wants me to do for his glory. And so being obedient to his still small voice means that I have to rearrange my schedule sometimes and priorities to match up and line up with his. That's not always easy to do. I'm, I'm pretty structured in my day and in my week. But, you know, I've just experienced God's promises coming true in my life as a result of being obedient to that still small voice. Now, I don't know about you, but <clears throat> there's been a couple of times in my life where I've struggled to, to speak 
uh, struggled to say what I want to say, and one of those uh, happened when we lived in Southern California. I had just told my pastor uh, there that God was calling me to be a pastor, and so he encouraged me to start teaching a small group Bible study, which I did. But one of the other things that he asked me to do <clears throat> after he knew what God was calling me to do is he said, hey, uh, I'm going to be gone, but I was wondering if you could teach my class at Calvary Chapel Bible College there in, in uh, Marietta, Hot Springs. And I was like, okay. So he gave me his notes, and, and uh, I studied most of those notes. <laughs> There's the key word, most. And so I went this one day, and I was uh, teaching his class for him. I was nervous in the process, and I was just, uh, you know, sharing his notes, using his notes to teach. And during one of those classes, I read an illustration that was personal for him, and it didn't fit me. But I got to the end of it, and I'm like, well, that's awkward. Like, it doesn't apply to me or fit me. It was his personal, you know, illustration. And so I'm stumbling and bumbling around trying to, you know, correct this faux pas that I've done and trying to, and just reading through his notes, and I hadn't read that ahead of time, right? So here I am, and the next thing you know, uh, the students and I just laughed about it. I apologized, and we just moved on. But that's maybe one of the only times where I've really struggled, <laughs> and that was in using someone else's notes, but we're going to see a little bit about that today as well. How about you? How many of us have heard God's still small voice prompting us? And have we been obedient to that prompting? Have we experienced His promises coming true in our lives and, and through that have we grown in our knowledge of who He is? So Moses was hurt and discouraged. Pastor Mark shared it with us last week. He had been treated poorly by the Israelite foreman. Right? They, in fact, they, they're just saying, I hope God judges you for what you guys have done. Like, you're bringing more hardship on us because you've talked to Pharaoh. So he turned to the Lord with questions and was encouraged that the Lord was going to make himself known to them of what he was going to do for them. He was going to fulfill his, his covenant promise to them. And the Lord gave Moses a message for the Israelites that they were not able to receive because their focus was on what Pharaoh was doing to them instead of what God was going to do for them. Moses fell into the same mindset when the Lord told him to go back to Pharaoh, as we'll see today. And God's fulfillment of his promises to the Israelites would help them know who he was. And the same is true for us. When God fulfills his promises to us, we can know him more. And so what the author wants us to understand today is our big idea that we can know God through his promises. That's what we're going to look at. So as you allow that to sink in, would you bow your heads with me as we just commit it to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come to you today. I, Lord, we confess too often we just, we focus on the things that we shouldn't be focusing on. And we can't even see what you're doing, or how you're going to work and act. And so, Lord, forgive us. Lord, I pray today that you would encourage and strengthen us to turn our eyes upon you, to look into your face, Lord God, to hear your still small voice encouraging us, guiding us, directing us. And Lord, I pray that 
as my prayer always is, that your people would hear your voice and not mine. That they would hear your word for them today and not my words. That they would be encouraged and challenged by you. And so, Lord, we lift it all up to you now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It says we dive into Exodus chapter 5, beginning at verse 22 and 23. We're going to be looking at the problem. That's our first point today. So look at those verses with me, if you would. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So Moses is kind of accusing God, isn't he? Here. But I think it's important that he return to the Lord. When the Israelite uh, foreman accused Moses and Aaron and called down judgment on them from God, Moses didn't retaliate. He didn't go after them. No, he returned to the Lord and shared his questions with the Lord. He didn't, get all, he didn't go to talk to anybody else about, this other, about these people. He went to the Lord. And so God's pleased when we return to him with our questions. God knew that what he was doing with Pharaoh and the Israelites because he's all-knowing, he's eternal, he's holy, he's righteous, and he's sovereign. He knew exactly what was going on. God knows what he's doing with our political leaders, our bosses, our supervisors, Children, he knows what he's doing through your parents and anyone who's in a position of authority over us. God knows what he's doing with us also. Too often we want to question those in authority over us and take out our frustration on them, especially when they accuse or reprimand us. We don't like that. That doesn't feel good. Yet God's able to do far above what we can ask or imagine as Paul writes to the Ephesian believers in chapter 3, verse 20. So what questions do you have for the Lord today? Maybe it's about your employment. Maybe it's about something else. Maybe it's a situation at home or in your family or even in your neighborhood. Maybe you've been reprimanded just this week. And you're thinking, ah, I just want to get back at that person, right? Instead, take it to the Lord. And so maybe you're ready to take this first next step today and it's to take my questions to the Lord instead of retaliating against, against an accuser. And God's pleased when we come to him with our questions and concerns. He knows everything. He can answer that concern that we have. Merida in his commentary says, it is okay to cry out with questions. Even Jesus, while on the cross, cried out, why have you forsaken me? As we see in Matthew 27, 46. These questions are not sinful. They just need to be humble, honest, and faithful. Ask God your questions, but do not ask sinfully or rebelliously. And remember, God does not have to answer our questions. He never answered all of Job's, but he does hear our questions. We can trust in that fact. He hears our cries. He hears the questions that we ask him. And again, he doesn't have to answer those. So that's what Moses did. He took his questions to the Lord when he was accused. We see these questions this morning. Moses questioned God on three levels. First, he questioned his goodness. He said, why have you brought trouble on your people? 
Ever since Moses spoke to Pharaoh in the Lord's name, Pharaoh had brought trouble on the Israelites. Moses just didn't understand what God was doing. See, Moses couldn't see the big picture of all that God was doing. He had to do this for a plan and a purpose. So it wouldn't just be that the Israelites were allowed to go out into the wilderness on a three-day journey to sacrifice and then come back to Egypt. No, like they were going to force them out of Egypt. There was a plan and a purpose that he had in this hardship that they were going through. Moses obviously thought that this exodus or rescue was going to be quick and easy, right? He's like, why are you causing all these problems, God? I don't understand. I thought this was going to be quick and easy. And he's like, no, you got to learn a few things. I have to set the stage. Everything has to be prepared. Stewart in his commentary says, as believers, we have to learn that God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. And his idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take, right? It doesn't always match up. Maybe he knows we need to go through more hardship than we've gone through in order to trust him. Maybe his timing is going to be a little bit longer than we think it should take. The second thing that Moses questioned about God was his purpose. He says, did you send me to bring trouble on the Israelites? I thought, because I thought that you brought me to set them free, to like rescue them. What is going on, God? I am, I'm definitely not understanding my purpose here. Because I thought you said at the burning bush that I'm supposed to go and bring these and lead these Israelites out. But that's not happening. The third thing he does is he questions God's actions. He says, are you really going to rescue your people? It doesn't look like it. From where I'm standing right now, God, it looks like you're going to make it more difficult and more uh, longer than I would like. And how many of us have questioned God's goodness, His purpose, His actions in our lives? Those of us in leadership positions have probably questioned the Lord on these three levels at some time in our lives because we've experienced opposition by those that we lead. That's what Moses and Aaron were dealing with. People that they were trying to lead are saying, we just want to call down God's judgment on you. You're not helping the situation. Ever since you went to Pharaoh, it's gotten worse for us. Wearsby in his commentary says, God's chosen servants must expect opposition and misunderstanding because that's part of what it means to be a leader. And leaders must know how to get alone with God, pour out their hearts, and seek his strength and wisdom. Spiritual leaders must be bold before people, but broken before God. And must claim God's promises and do His will, even when everything seems to be against them. I want to encourage everyone this morning to be praying for Mike Johnson. He's the new Speaker of the House in the House of Representatives. I don't know if you've watched anything about what's going on there, but the the night that he was voted to be the Speaker of the House, before he gave his acceptance speech, he knelt down and prayed. And because of his... Because of... I should say he's already experiencing... Opposition because of his Judeo-Christian beliefs. And so I want us to pray that he will be bold before people 
but broken before God. And that he will do God's will even when everything and everyone seems to be against him. It's already happening. You can see it in the media. It's coming. They're already attacking him. And we need to pray for him that he will remain strong. And so as we move into our second point this morning, I want you to notice something about God. He does not answer Moses' question of why. So what does he do? He reminds Moses that he is all-powerful. He reminds Moses that he is in control and his plan will not be thwarted. One commentator writes, many believers believe in God's sovereignty theologically, but practically they are our emotional train wrecks. They have not worked this truth down deep into their hearts. Like, oh yeah, we, God's sovereign, yeah, yeah. And then something comes along and we're like, I don't know if God's sovereign. <laughs> I, just don't, I don't feel that right now. And that's the problem. We can't rely on our feelings. We have to rely on the truths of who God is. So let's look at our second point this morning, which is promise. And we're going to look at verse 1 of chapter 6, because we see power here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So we see the power of God here. The Lord reassures Moses that he's going to act. He will rescue his people with his mighty hand. Pharaoh will not only let the Israelites go, he will drive them out of Egypt. If we look back at Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, we read these words. <clears throat> so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And then in Exodus chapter 12... Verses 31, 33, and 39, we read these words, and this is what's coming up. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. Then in verse 39, with the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. So God's mighty hand would be evident through the ten plagues that Egypt was about to experience. They were going to be driven out, and God says to Moses here, he says, you just wait, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. I'm going to use my mighty hand. And so God will accomplish his plan through his mighty hand. We can trust in God's mighty hand to accomplish his plan in our lives too. You know, as we return to the Lord and ask him our questions about what's currently going on in our lives, he will remind us that he's in control, that he is almighty, that he is sovereign, and so much more. He's going to encourage us and strengthen us in the midst of that difficult time where we don't understand what's going on. Why, God? Why are you letting this hardship come on us as a church, right? We don't understand. God says, you're going to see my mighty hand at work. Don't turn away. Don't miss it. 
And so in what area of your life do you need to trust God's mighty hand to accomplish this plan today? Is it finances? Is it relationships? Is it employment? Is it schooling? Maybe it's housing or your health. Maybe your retirement or something going on spiritually. Where do you need his help today? So take a moment to just identify that area. And then let the Lord know that you are trusting him to accomplish his plan with his mighty hand. And take this second step. That's to trust God's mighty hand to accomplish his plan concerning. What is it today? What do you need his mighty hand to accomplish? And Moses and the Israelites were going to know God through his promise to rescue them. And we can know God through his promises too. The Lord assured Moses that his power is coming. He will keep his promise to rescue the Israelites. The Lord had not forgotten about his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the past. And so we see the second subpoint under promise today is past, verses 2 to 5. This is what God says. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. <clears throat> so under this promise point this morning, we see God's power, but then we see God reminding them of the past. God had appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. What God what did God mean when he said that he had not made himself known to the patriarchs by the name Yahweh? He is certainly referred to in, in Genesis as Yahweh when we read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> Some scholars believe that the second half of verse 3 has a short statement um, followed by a question. And it would read like this, My name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known to them? But most scholars believe that God was uh, going to make himself known to, the, to Moses in a way that he had not done with the patriarchs. They were, Moses was going to know them on a deeper level. Hamilton says this, The issue is not knowledge of the name per se, but how God most fully makes himself known as Yahweh. This knowledge turns on the events of the Exodus. Abraham did not know him as he would be known in the Exodus. His mighty hand was going to be poured out in a way that had never been seen before. God would be known on a deeper and fuller level than he had previously been known as he fulfills his promises to the Israelites. And so we can know God through his promises too. The amazing thing is that we have more of God's word, more of his promises than Moses and the Israelites ever had. We have an incredible opportunity to fully know what has been revealed about God through the fulfillment of his promise to send his son, Jesus. We know God on a deeper level than they would have because of Jesus coming. But the complete knowledge of God is still beyond our grasp, but one day we will know him completely as we are fully known. That's what Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Listen to these words. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, 
even as I am fully known. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, we can know God more and more and more, but we won't know him fully, completely, until we see him face to face. Is anybody else ready for that day? I am. It could happen today. That would be amazing, right? While the patriarchs were familiar with his name, Yahweh, they did not know the Lord like Moses and the Israelites would. There was this covenant with the patriarchs. God reminded Moses of that covenant that he had made with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. God promised to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, we read these words. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Teresa, are you glad I didn't have you read that passage this morning? Okay, just wanted to check. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 to 8 tell us this. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, will, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Wow. So God heard and he remembered. He was aware of the Israelites' discouragement and the cruel bondage that they were in right now. He had heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant, and he was ready to act. Today, God hears our cries and is ready to act on our behalf. Aren't you grateful for that today? Psalm chapter 35, verse 17 tells us this. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. It's a great promise. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you think that God hears you? It tells us in his word that he does. He's attentive to your voice today, to your cries for help. So hold on to that truth today. God had assured Moses of his power and his past covenant with the patriarchs, but now he shared his plan for the present situation. Look at verses 6 to 8. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. That's powerful. So we see this promise being fulfilled in the present, right? And the first word there in in, uh, verse 6 is therefore. And we always have to ask what it's there for. Why is that word there? Because God is all-powerful and he always keeps his promises. This is what Moses was to tell the Israelites. He said, you have to tell the Israelites because I am all-powerful. 
and I always keep my promises. <clears throat> so here we see seven I will statements that can be categorized into three groups. The first is liberation. He says this, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So I'm going to bring you out. This is all about liberation. The second one, he says, I will free, which means deliver or rescue you from being slaves to them. And then the third I will that he says in liberation is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So this redemption, the Hebrew word for redeem means to buy back what was originally one's own. Isn't that beautiful? God's saying, I'm going to buy you back. You were already mine. I created you. You are my people. You're my chosen people. And I'm going to buy you back. Wow. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, the Lord referred to Israel as his firstborn son. We just talked about that several weeks ago. And this is a family affair, and God is restoring the family unit. He's like, we're bringing it back together. And he says, I'm going to do it with an outstretched arm. This is, uh, is a metaphor of power in action, as McKay says. God's power in action will be done with righteous indignation. He was going to do it in a way that was right. And then we see this mighty acts of judgment. This is probably a forewarning of the plagues that are about to be released on Egypt. <clears throat> so I'm going to do it with mighty acts. God will use these mighty acts of judgment to correct the cruel bondage the Israelites had experienced. And these mighty acts would force Pharaoh's hand. He would release the Israelites and urge them, force them to leave the country. And the Israelites would no longer be slaves in Egypt, but rescued and redeemed. The second thing we see here with the I will statements is adoption. He says this, I will take you as my own people. The literal translation reads this way, I will take you to me, to myself, as a people. God desired to be in relationship with the Israelites. The second I will there, he says, I will be your God. Their liberation was not only from an oppressive regime, but so they could have an ongoing self-dedication to God. They would have to leave behind any idols they had accumulated in Egypt or any feelings of Pharaoh worship. Hamilton says, before God desires to bring Israel to Canaan, he desires to bring Israel to himself. As Jansen correctly says, God's aim and desire are not simply to bring us into the land, but to bring us into intimate relation with God. Fellowship and intimacy trump relocation. I like that statement. Fellowship and intimacy trump relocation. And the final category of the I will statements is acquisition. He said, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to your forefathers. The uplifted hand represented an oath. Think about uh, taking an oath in our culture today. In a court of law, we raise our right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. The President of the United States, on Inauguration Day, places their hand on a Bible and raise, raise their hand while swearing on an oath to our country. That's what God said. He said, I... I took this oath with uplifted hand to bring you into this land. And then the second I will there is he says, I will give it to you as a possession. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were only aliens living in Canaan. The Israelites would own the land in Canaan. 
I don't know how much to meddle here this morning, right? Who owns the land in Israel? First off, God. Who did he give it to? I guess that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. He's given it to Israel. It's their possession, not anybody else's. And they've been generous because they give them a portion of it called Gaza to Palestinians. I won't meddle any further. <laughs> the Israelites' liberation, adoption, and acquisition would happen because it was the Lord who was doing it. Moses probably left this time with the Lord feeling encouraged, renewed, refreshed, and ready to take on the world. But there was a pressure that was building here. Look at verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites. He went and told them everything that God said he was going to do. This is amazing, right? But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Talk about having your bubble bursted, right? He's like, man, I spent this great, incredible time with the Lord. Has that ever happened to you? I had, had this incredible time with the Lord, and I went to go tell my spouse about it, and they were like, yeah, 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 whatever. And you're like, right? Oh, man. You go and tell your best friend or maybe a co-worker that you know is a believer, and they're like, you're like, great. Moses' emotions were probably on a roller coaster. He was down after talking with the Israelite foremen, right? He was up after spending time with the Lord. He was down after talking to the Israelites. And how many of us can relate to that ride, right? Depending on who we're talking to, our emotions can be all over the place. We can feel like we don't even know what's going on. The Israelites were not in a mental state to be able to hear the awesome, encouraging news from the Lord. Rescue was on the way, but they couldn't hear it. They were experiencing anguish and, a, and oppression-induced exhaustion. A com one commentator writes, Faith is often diminished by hardship because emotions play a powerful part in most human thinking. And thinking can become increasingly pessimistic when any sort of pain continues unabated. How many of us have experienced that? Like, we just, our thinking just goes down the drain when we have some pain or suffering that we're going through. Like, we can't focus on the great things that God's doing because we're so focused on that pain. You know, when we are hurting and discouraged, it's hard to listen to the Lord. Certainly, at first, we may be strong and resilient when hardship comes our way, but the longer we experience pain and suffering, the harder it is to maintain hope. When we feel like the Lord is not answering our prayers or bringing the healing and help that we want, it can be easy to stop praying, to stop reading the Bible, and are going to church. And because we cannot see the big picture, we begin to give up and give in. <clears throat> John Newton said that the way the Christian might endure trials is by considering the doctrine of glorification, which includes inheritance. Newton said, the Christian should not complain, murmur, or despair in light of all that is coming he said we should imagine a man who inherited a really large estate worth millions, and he had to go to New York City to get it. As he journeyed there, his carriage, it tells you how long ago John Newton was speaking, <clears throat> uh, his carriage broke down, leaving him to walk the last one mile. 
Can you imagine that man saying, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, kicking and complaining in disgust when he only has one mile to go to receive millions? Christian, we only have a few more miles to go. Rest in God's promises and faithfulness. Riken says this, they were so broken that they would not listen to the promise of freedom. Oh my goodness. Wow. Are you so broken that you cannot listen to the promise of freedom today? Maybe it's from an addiction. You can't even, you can't hear the promise of freedom from addiction or freedom from something else. Freedom from discouragement or depression or anxiety. Freedom from fear. Do you need to focus on the doctrine of glorification while you're experiencing pain and suffering? Maybe you're ready for this step today, and that's to listen to the Lord even though I'm experiencing the pain and suffering of. You know, we can anticipate opposition when we are carrying out God's work. As leaders, we know that that's true. As ambassadors for Christ, this is a common reality. How often do we experience opposition when we try to share the hope of eternity with family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers? And I want to encourage you today to keep up the good fight. Don't give up. Keep telling people about Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul is writing to his protege, right? He says this, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That encouragement is for us today too. Fight the good fight of faith. While Moses is feeling the pressure from the Israelites, the Lord asked him to go back to Pharaoh. And so in the last uh, three verses, we see this protest that takes place. Moses uh, says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of, this, out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Oh, he's returning to an old excuse. The Lord instructs Moses to go tell Pharaoh, uh, to, uh, yeah, to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of the country. But Moses just protests because he says, if the Israelites aren't going to listen to me, why would Pharaoh? Moses returns to his familiar excuse of having faltering lips. Perhaps a better translation of the Hebrew word here for faltering is uncircumcised. Moses was not saying that he had a speech impediment. He was rather saying, disingenuously, that he was not ready for public speaking, using the metaphorical language of circumcision. So this may be a reference back to the narrative when Zipporah circumcised their son in order to protect Moses. God could not use Moses to accomplish his plan of rescue and fulfillment of his covenant if Moses was not following the covenant command. So perhaps Moses thought if he used the language of circumcision pertaining to his lips, that God would release him from his mission. God, my lips are not circumcised. Can't do it. But God knew better, right? Moses was his man. And this will be evident through the genealogy that we're going to look at next week in Exodus 6, verses 13 to 27. So are you ready to take your questions to the Lord instead of retaliating against your accuser? 
What do you need to trust God's mighty hand to accomplish in your life right now? Do you need to listen to the Lord even though you're experiencing the pain and suffering? And as a body of believers, we need to take our questions to the Lord, not to anyone else. We need to trust God's mighty hand to accomplish his plan for our church. We need to listen to the Lord even though we are experiencing pain and suffering. You know, Moses was like, I can't speak very well, right? I have these uncircumcised lips. And Stuart Briscoe preached his first sermon at age 17. He didn't know uh, much about the topic assigned him by an elder, but he researched the church of Ephesus until he had a pile of notes and three points as seemed proper for a sermon. Then he stood before the brethren in a British gospel hall and preached and preached and preached. He kept going until he used up more than his allotted time just to reach the end of the first point and still kept going until finally he looked up from his notes and made a confession. I'm terribly sorry, he said. I don't know how to stop. Briscoe recalled in his memoir that a man from the back shouted out, just shut up and sit down. (laughs) You know, that might have been the end of his preaching career, but he was invited to preach again the next week. And he continued preaching for seven more decades. In the process, Briscoe became a better preacher, discovered he had a gift, and was encouraged to develop it. He ultimately preached in more than 100 countries around the world and to a growing and multiplying church in America. When Briscoe died on August 3rd of 2022, at the age of 91, he was known as a great preacher who spoke with clarity, loved, uh, loved the people he preached to, and had a deep trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. He once wrote, My primary concern in preaching is to glorify God through His Son. I've worked hard to preach effectively, but I've also learned to trust as well. Farmers plow their lands, plant their seed, and then go home to bed, awaiting God's germinating laws to work. Surgeons only cut, God heals. I must give my full energy to doing my part in the pulpit, but the ultimate success of my preaching rests in God. I understand that. (laughs) That's how I feel. I have to trust the Lord for his words for you. And then he has to do the rest of the work. And so I trust that today you will be encouraged by the fact that God is a God that will do a lot of things for us, right? Bring us into relationship. He will redeem us. He will allow us to acquire his possessions. And so as the worship team comes and as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can know you through your word, through your promises, Lord. We are so blessed. I pray, Lord God, that we would just desire to know you on a deeper level. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will know you fully as we are fully known. Lord, we just lift this message up to you now for your honor and glory. Would you now begin your work in the hearts and minds of your people? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.